This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Fourth Estate, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs. Coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Marilyn Hetrilis. Coming up, the world watches in shock as The Guardian Australia releases over 2,000 leaked documents detailing allegations of assault, sexual abuse and self-harm in the Nauru files. Meanwhile, Australians worry about their privacy following hacking attacks on this year's hashtag census fail. And Facebook, you won't believe what they've done now. Joining me in the studio is technology journalist for Gizmodo Australia, Ray Johnston. Hi. Hello. And from the ABC's national reporting team, Natasha Robinson. Hi, Marilyn. And joining us on the line from The Guardian Australia is Ben Doherty. In the biggest leak ever published from Australia's immigration detention system, The Guardian Australia have released the Nauru files, including over 2,000 first-hand incident reports from the centre. Half of the files contain reports of the assault and sexual assault of children, self-harming involving children and threatened self-harm involving children. Children make up just 10% of the population in the detention centre. These incident reports are extremely distressing and difficult to read. A report from 2014 describes a girl who had her lips sewn together only to be laughed at by a guard, and they only get more distressing. Former Save the Children workers say these files are just the tip of the iceberg. The story is much of what we already know, but it's the scale that's staggering. Within 12 hours of the Four Corners report on Don Dale, there was an announcement for a royal commission. Is that the power of TV visuals, do you think, Ray? Seeing is believing. Could video material from our immigration detention centres be more impactful, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there had been reports for years about the mistreatment of Aboriginal people in particular in custody that wasn't really in the public consciousness until we saw that footage uh, resulting in Don Dale and the you know, call for the investigation and Royal Commission. Yes, I think absolutely. Being faced with these things rather than just kind of hearing about them and pushing them aside. And you know, generally people don't enjoy reading things as horrible and distressing and as negative as this. So when it's put in front of them in a, in a visual way, it, it's more visceral and I think gets through to a lot more people. And the files are of the period from 2013 to 2015. Um, Natasha, do you think that this is historical material that the journalists are trying to use to shift policy here? This is hardly historical. I think the documents went up until September last year. Um, that That is very, very recent. There is no indication whatsoever that what's being described in those documents has changed at all. Um, in fact, for the people who've spent even longer on Nauru, one could say that the situation has quite possibly become worse. WikiLeaks was criticised for just dumping loads of data online for the public to have access to instead of cross-checking data. How is this different? Is it right for journalists to simply make this information available or should they mediate it? 
This is a tricky one, I think. But look, I, I, I think that it would be difficult as a journalist to look at this information and not think that it was in the public's best interests to know about these events. This is a taxpayer-funded facility. After all, this is our money going towards this this concentration camp, essentially, that is a, a place where children are being tortured and assaulted. I would want to know as a member of the public... So, yeah. Oh, look, I, I think that this idea that um, that this information should have been um, somehow uh, me- mediated or you know cross-checked. Look, the Guardian did an incredible amount of, of cross-checking, but this idea that the information shouldn't have been published because the reports may not be verifiable or they may not be true, I think is is absurd. I mean. This, this, as the journalist who pulled all of this together from the Guardian, Paul Farrell, um, said this week, this is primary evidence. Um, in, in the circumstances of the the incredible difficulty of getting information out of Nauru, the government's ban on journalists going there, their refusal to issue visas, the, this secrecy uh, that is that is a constant theme in in immigration, you know, the citing of national security concerns, that's even more reason to put this information out there in the public and, and people can judge for themselves. When columnist at the Australian Nick Cater said on ABC's The Drum last night that he didn't believe in this kind of journalism, that we don't know for sure, you know, which incidences have been reported, proved or prosecuted. So should The Guardian have released these reports to the public if they were unconfirmed? Well, yes, is the, is the, is the simple answer. If they're unconfirmed, I mean, nobody's saying that, they, that that's not the case. That, that's, that is how they were presented. There was no deception on the part of The Guardian. They, they were incident reports. Um, you know, Peter Dutton's response I, I see today is that, uh, you know, some of these reports um, may have been uh, made up by asylum seekers as a leverage tool to get to Australia. Um, that may be the case in some circumstances, but the, the one of the one of the um, things that Peter Dutton said um, today, uh, in that some asylum seekers have have self-immolated in order to get to Australia, um, you know, look, I think that you know, I really question. Nobody, to me, I think it is is quite quite clear that nobody sets themselves on fire mm. in order to make it to mainland Australia. I mean, that is a that is an act of somebody who genuinely wants to die. Ben, I'll ask you from The Guardian, um, how did your organisation, can you tell us a bit more about how you went about publishing these leaked documents? Uh, look, I can tell you a little bit. I, I, I won't tell you everything. Um, uh, look, this has not been a decision. Um, publishing these documents wasn't something we we decided to do lightly. It's not like they arrived with us yesterday and, and, and we just put them all straight up. You know, this has been months in preparation and we really did sit down once we were aware of, of what we had here in this case of documents and, and we sort of asked ourselves, well, what is what is the, the, the public interest here? What are the risks of, of putting this information out into the public domain and, and, and what are the what are the benefits to to public interest in 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 what is an area of, of you know of, of significant debate in Australian politics um, uh, and and of, of, of sort of you know regional and and global concern so so we, we, were, we were very methodical we went through you know every single one of, of those files and as we say there's about eight thousand pages two thousand separate incident reports every one of those files has been looked at at least five or six times we went through and we were very careful to 
uh, redact information, uh, personal identifying information, so that we weren't exposing the names and identities of people who were seeking asylum or who were refugees. We weren't exposing the identities of people who'd been victims of, of, of sexual violence or assault. Um, but we felt that there was a huge and, and very powerful public benefit to knowing what's going on in these camps uh, to knowing how these camps are operating and the, the, the circumstances under which people are, are, are living there. The offshore detention regime, um, as, as everybody will, will, will know, is one that's very hard to gain any information about. These places are very remote. They're very hard to get to, particularly in the case of Nauru. Um, and so we felt that there was, there was genuine public, public benefit in, in allowing the Australian people to see and, and the world to see this is what's happening in these places. These are the incident reports. These are not the words of advocates these are not the words of journalists these are not the words of outsiders these are this is the regime itself talking this is these are the internal working documents of um of 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 these detention centers and ben in the introduction of this project the authors state that most of the alleged incidents are in line with what we already know is going on even though immigration minister peter dutton is convinced the refugees on nauru have fabricated these stories and he's warned people not to believe the hype what do you say to that look i i don't think that's an argument that has much verisimilitude. Um, we've heard from from many people um, who've who've been on the islands, who've worked on the islands, um, talking about these sort of incidents. Um, we've had separate uh, leaks of incident reports uh, from set from separate organisations that confirm certain incidents uh, that have happened. We've had incidents confirmed by um, by video. You know, and I I, I speak in in, in particular. Um, the, the, the horrible and, and terrible self-immolation of Omid Masamali earlier this year, that, that there were pictures of, you know, the, these things happened. It, 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 it's undeniable that these things are happening. We've had people like um, Dr Peter Young, uh, who was the chief psychiatrist on the island, um, reporting uh, and, uh, 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 about uh, self-harm and suicide attempts by children. He, he likened the conditions in, in detention to torture. We had just recently Paul Stevenson, who's a, who's a traumatologist of, of you know, four decades' experience, saying that, the, the conditions in those camps are an atrocity. So, the the weight of evidence um, just suggests that that that, that, um, that it, it's it's not the case that that, that these things are fabricated or, or made up. The weight of evidence that suggests that that these uh, these incident reports are, are genuine um, and and they are an accurate reflection of of the situation. And there's, there's a huge amount of information on um, these reports. How did the journalists working on the project manage to present it in such a great way for readers to digest? Uh, a lot of coffee, uh, a lot of <laughs> late nights. Look, we, we're, we're only um, a small team here at uh, the, the, the Australian arm of the Guardian, but we had a, a significant portion of, of our newsroom working on this. Um, and, 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 and we were sort of very structured and, and very sort of careful in the way we went, we went through everything. Um, a lot of that, I have to say, uh, is, is down to our data editor, Nick Evershed, who's, who's quite brilliant with, with the way, with, with presenting large amounts of information and, and synthesizing that and being able to present it in a way that, um, that's compelling and accessible. Um, and, and this increasingly is, is the way journalism is, journalism, journalism, sorry, is, I should know how to pronounce that word, is, uh, is, is working. I mean, and The Guardian has some experience here um, in, in, in terms of um, uh, the, Ed, the Edward Snowden NSA revelations, the Panama Papers, these sorts of things. You know, we, we do live in a world now where huge amounts of data are generated um, and, and the, the, real, uh, the real gift and the real skill, I think, is being able to synthesise it, being able to analyse it, being able to present it in a way that's accessible so people are able to understand what it's telling you. 
And there is a culture of under-reporting on Nauru. Um, Guardian journalist Paul Farrell called Cater's argument that this journalism is absurd just wrong on the drum last night. Um, this is primary evidence, as he said. I'll put this to the panel. Is it ultimately, above all else, a journalist's responsibility to shift the veil of secrecy for the public when presenting leaked information? Well, look, I think um, I agree with everything everything Ben said about the importance of uh, putting this um, information out there in the public. I think that um, that the that there, there is a mediating role for for journalists to play. Um, we've seen some examples um, where you know WikiLeaks have been criticised for 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 actually endangering the safety of. Um, people that are detailed uh, in their in the papers that they've they've put out there online, I think it is irresponsible to just dump data and to just dump this sort of material um, out there. That's clearly not what happened in in these circumstances. It's it's pretty clear that there's been an, an, a high degree of due, due diligence undertaken by the journalists, and I think that that argument that um, it's irresponsible in some way because you know you can't you can't you're not standing there as judge and jury over these incident reports is that doesn't hold water. What I think is irresponsible is the continued systemic dehumanisation of people, be they Aboriginal people in custody, be they refugees, asylum seekers on Nauru. And reports such as this helps remind everyone that these are real people going through real things. And and it's very important that we get that back into the Australian psych. I've seen a shift in the way that we behave and and treat people that we don't know. And it's it's nice to see, as, as strange as it is to say nice about a story like this, to see something like this come out and, and just remind people of that. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilies, and I'm speaking to Natasha Robinson, Ben Doherty and Ray Johnston. Well, if Australians weren't already freaking out about their privacy due to this year's census changes, they certainly are now. It's day three and the census still isn't online after it was subject to a cyber attack. Media figures encouraged their audiences to boycott this year's hashtag census fail. But is it really responsible behaviour for a journalist? Crikey politics editor Bernard Keane told his readers to boycott the census as the only way to protect their privacy. The Australian Bureau of Statistics responded to the article, claiming Keane was encouraging readers to act illegally. Should journalists ever be encouraging readers to do something illegal, Ben? Uh, this is an excellent question um, uh, and, look, a, a, a very difficult one. I, I think, uh, look, um, I, I, I haven't given it much thought, um, but I, I did see Bernard's piece um, and, and Bernard certainly has, has a position on this. And, and, and I suppose he feels look, strongly enough that, that this is a breach of privacy, this is an overreach by the government here and one that should be resisted. Um, whether or not I agree with him, I'm I'm really not sure. It is a very very difficult line for the journalists um, to to tread. I think, um, and I think journalists, and I I would expect that, that Bernard thought very long and hard before before filing something like that. Certainly, he wasn't encouraging people to be to be violent, to be destructive or anyway. But but I I think he he saw um, a principle at at stake here, and he felt that on balance. Um, defying the the legal obligation was worth it uh, was was worth um, was worth upholding that principle. Um, it is it is a very um, difficult line for, for, for journalists to walk, and I, I would I would hope that it's one that journalists consider very very carefully um, whenever they whenever they're confronted with that sort of situation. 
Natasha, is Keen in the clear if several parliamentarians and senators are boycotting the census too? I, <clears throat> I'd probably put this under the umbrella of civil disobedience. Um, look, I, I myself would not be in a position to advocate, you know, people not fill in the census, but I think a publication, uh, you know, whether that was my view or it wasn't, um, but, but the... The, um, and, me- and most journalists actually, in fact, would not be in that kind of position. I think Crikey um, is a publication that is probably well placed to um, to argue that kind of position if they took an editorial decision that they that they that they thought that, that was justified. And and that, and I think that Bernard Keane's arguments were um, well argued, and they were they were pretty cogent. If you if you read what he had to say, and I I do think that this. Um, well, as a, a journalist, I don't. I think it's, um, you know, it's not a, not the place of a journalist to advocate that the public members of the public break the law. But by the same token, there has been a long tradition um, in. Uh, you know, civil rights movements in um, various um, activist uh, movements right across the world uh, for, for incredibly important causes that people do undertake civil disobedience. And, you know, I think that if you take Rosa Parks um, refusing to, to get off a bus, look at, um, you know, there's plenty of examples right across the world where people have taken a stand against a law that they don't believe is justified. So I think that that's certainly a position that is um, that is arguable for someone like Bernard Keane. And some people have pointed out that, you know, our data is already stored in all sorts of places, government agencies, companies and social media. The ABS has said your data is secure, your data is encrypted, your data is safe with the ABS. Do you think the hacking panic is justified, Ray? Well, I think the hacking panic came about due to very poor communication, for starters. We had the ABS come out first thing, you know, in the morning, the day after the census and say, you know, there was a hack and then it was, wait, no, it wasn't a hack. It was a DDoS attack. And then it's like, wait, hold on, what's a DDoS attack? And then it's, you know, the the server's overloaded, you know, everything fell down, the geo-blocking failed and we shut it all down as a precaution. I think the ABS saying that your data is safe... You you kind of need to lay all the information out on the table here. There's been no less than 14 uh, security breaches with uh, data stored within the ABS since 2013. None of that was census data, of course, but I think we've got kind of trust in the ABS system at, at a pretty low point at mm. this point in time. Uh, I don't think that anyone freaking out that their data has been accessed by overseas hackers is justified at this point. But I think that that was down to more of a communication error, really. Should they have had a better media strategy to ease the public's concern? Absolutely. I mean, if even if you look at the Australian Census Twitter account, it's got a long history of being highly entertaining. It puts out little snippets of information <laughs> about you know the Australian population. It provides a really good snapshot of those things. The second that the website got pulled down, it turned into this authoritarian site that was saying, we're going to fine you, Mm. you know, you have to fill the census in, reminding people of that. And I don't think that that was the right tack to take, really. The Australian Privacy Commission has opened an investigation into the cyber attacks um, to ensure no personal information has been compromised. And the Prime Minister's cyber advisor said the privacy debate in the lead up to the census actually made it a target for these cyber attacks. Ben, do you think social and mainstream media um, debate could have contributed to this? 
Um, look, quite possibly one of the um, one of the more far fetched, um, but but uh, seemingly credible at at the time suggestions was, was this was payback from China because Mac Horton had beaten Sun Yang in the two hundred <laughs> metres freestyle, four hundred metres freestyle, and um, and had been sort of rude about things. Um, look, I mean, it, it has, as, as Ray was saying, become quite ridiculous, and I, I think um, the way that the ABS has handled it, the 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 public face of the ABS, which is which is essentially what how how the the Australian public knows this agency um, has been very clumsy, um, sort of uh, hasn't given the appearance of, of any great competence at all, and, and has then got all of a sudden very aggressive and, and, and authoritarian, um, and and so people rightly have, uh, I, I, I suppose, understandably have have reacted um, very poorly to that. I do think um, that that social media and, and mainstream media talking about it has, has put this in the zeitgeist, but. This is the world we live in. I mean, you know, social media is not going away. Mainstream media is not going away. This is the world that they live in. And if they said they were capable of of, of doing this online and storing the data and and being able to to withstand attacks or or withstand a peak load, then they should have been able to do it. I mean, it really just came down to their competence to to achieve what they were supposed to do. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilles, and I'm speaking to Natasha Robinson, Ben Doherty and Ray Johnston. And now to Facebook. It's where many people get their news and publishers have developed their audience strategies accordingly. But the company has declared a war on clickbait journalism. By using a system similar to how email spam filters work, Facebook can now identify posts containing articles with clickbait headlines and push them further down your newsfeed. Ray, the move to online has increased the amount of clickbait journalism that gets produced. Which publishers will be most affected by Facebook's recent changes, do you think? Oh, look, I think they'll be the ones that you see being shared by your auntie, really, on Facebook. I think the bottom line with this is this sort of journalism, we're going to call it that, uh, gets shared because people click on it, because it is, that's the whole reason it gets created, because people do want this sort of thing, which is ridiculous to most people that enjoy actual quality journalism and writing. So it is a very interesting move by Facebook, I think, as it it positions itself as being seen as a credible news source as opposed to somewhere where you do see clickbait shared. Facebook has identified clickbait headlines to be those that withhold information required to understand what the content of the article is and headlines that exaggerate the article to create misleading expectations. Do these changes mean journalists might just write more creative clickbait headlines, Natasha? Who knows? I mean, is that going to get around Facebook's, you know, decision of, of what what is acceptable and isn't acceptable and what, what people should should be clicking on or, or are being tricked into? I mean, I think this is very dangerous territory for Facebook, frankly. They already set themselves up as the arbiter of moral standards um, in situations where you've got women sharing breastfeeding on Facebook. Mm. Um, you've got, you've got, you know, Aboriginal women... In you know, in the desert depicted as part, you know, to do with a news story. It gets ripped down by by Facebook. You have, you know, you saw in the example of the Don Dale Four Corners story, Facebook taking down um, particular images that they deemed offensive. I mean, this is not the role of a social media giant like Facebook to 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 actually decide, you know, what what is what's acceptable and what isn't. It's uh, it, it, people if they want to click on clickbait, you know they should be able to knock themselves out without Facebook stepping in and saying, you know, look, we're above this. 
Facebook has said that it's making these changes based on what users want. What do you think, Ben? Are people really not smart enough to avoid the clickbait if they want that they see on Facebook? Look, people, no one's forcing people to click on headbait headlines. If, if they want them, they will click on them. If, if, if they don't, you know, they're, they're very capable of, 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 of scrolling past. So I, I don't see that that, that argument um, washes. I mean, I, I, I appreciate um, that, that people do express a frustration with clickbait in that you, you kind of, you'll never guess what happens next. You sort of, like, I've got to click on that because now I need to find out, you know. And that's exactly what it's designed to do. But I, I think Natasha's point is, is, a really, is a really strong one. And um, that, that, that Facebook is becoming the kind of gatekeeper and in, in many ways the kind of moral arbiter of, of what we're allowed to see. Um, which I think is dangerous in any democracy. Um, and, and Facebook is hugely influential. Its numbers are massive. The amount of, of traffic it, it can generate for a news site is, is absolutely extraordinary. So that level of power being vested in, in, in one organisation, I, I, I don't think is healthy. Facebook did make other changes to their algorithm recently. They've stopped letting publishers dominate the newsfeed in order to give space back to personal statuses from family and friends. Does this change make the experience more valuable for users, Ray? Well, I think if people have liked a particular page on Facebook, it's because they want to see updates from them. You know, Facebook kind of saying you you want to see those updates from your next door neighbour about what they had for breakfast, as opposed to, say, news coming from one of the news sites that you've liked. Who are they to say that again? You know, I think this is Facebook just kind of pushing their own ideas onto its users rather than genuinely listening to what they want, because we can already control what we see in our newsfeed. We can unfollow certain pages, even if we still do like them. We can unfollow certain friends. We can mark friends as close friends and see their updates first. So we already have those tools in our toolkit. So for Facebook to take that choice away from us, I find kind of strange. And how do you think it will impact publishers who have built their audience strategy around Facebook traffic? Well, I think Facebook is kind of banking on the fact that people will be paying for advertising in order to reach more people. We will still be seeing sponsored posts pop up. We'll be still seeing ads down the side. But you've got brands in particular that have built up a community online where those people just aren't seeing those updates anymore. And they're seeing their engagement dropping big time. They're seeing the reach that their posts have dropping. So they will be in a position where they're forced to invest money into making ads on Facebook to promote their pages. And nobody likes clickbait, but it obviously works. Do you think this move from Facebook risks decreasing exposure and traffic for publishers that actually use clickbait to draw people in, but they still deliver interesting content, Natasha? Yeah, I think it does. And I think what Ray was saying is what it all boils down to. It's the commercial imperative. And this is Facebook wrapping up a commercial decision as, as, a, as a decision that, that you know, is, is some kind of um, altruistic benefit for its users. I mean, let's cut the... Um, baloney from Facebook and 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 I mean people people can see see right through um, this strategy and and um, if, if they think that they can spin it as as some kind of um, you know this is what we've been listening to what people want I think they'll they'll find that they're quite wrong that's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Natasha Robinson, Ben Doherty and Ray Johnston. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. My name's Marilyn Hetrilees.